I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. Hudson is a policy research organization dedicated to U.S. international leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. It is, uh, I'd like to welcome our audience present as well as our C-SPAN viewing audience, and I'm truly honored to welcome a remarkable public servant and a truly good friend of Hudson Institute uh, to be with us this afternoon, Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coates. Dan Coates, of course, served with great distinction as a uh, member of the House and Senate from Indiana, as well as a U.S. Ambassador to, the, to Germany uh, during a long career in public service. As he told me as we were coming up here today, he has twice failed retirement, once returning to the U.S. Senate for a, a second uh, uh, time in, in the Senate uh, after his term as ambassador to Germany and then uh, becoming a director of national intelligence. Uh, he's had a long and distinguished career in public service focused both on domestic policy reform, coming up with what eventually became the compassionate conservatism agenda and true leadership on uh, defense and national security issues. And I mentioned he's a good friend of Hudson Institute before he left for Germany as ambassador, he and his wife, Marcia, transferred the governance of uh, their foundation, the Foundation for American Renewal, to Hudson Institute. Now, in the Trump administration, Dan Coates has been entrusted with a job with deep responsibilities and immense challenges. The director of national intelligence serves as the head of the U.S. intelligence community, overseeing and directing the implementation of the national intelligence program and acting as the principal advisor to the president of the National Security Council and the Homeland Security Council for Intelligence Matters Related to National Security. He is in with the president when he is in town and when the president is in town to do the daily, the presidential daily intelligence brief with senior members of uh, the intelligence community. And we're, we're, as I mentioned earlier, we are truly honored to have him with us today. He has chosen Hudson as the venue to make remarks on a number of critical issues, including Russian cybersecurity in the U.S. and abroad, and to do so on the eve of the historic summit uh, in Helsinki between uh, President uh, Trump and uh, Vladimir Putin. So the order of the business today will be that uh, Director Coates will offer remarks from the podium, then he will engage in a discussion with Hudson Institute Distinguished Fellow Walter Russell Mead. Walter needs also no introduction here. Walter is the Dean of Observers of U.S. Foreign Policy. He's, in addition to being the global, in addition to being a distinguished fellow at Hudson Institute, he's the Global View columnist for the Wall Street uh, Journal, and he is also the James Chase Professor of International Affairs at Bard College. So, without any further ado, let me welcome uh, Director Coates to the Hudson Institute podium. Uh, Ken, thank you very much. It's uh, nice to be here at Hudson. We enjoyed Hudson's presence in Indiana for a time. Uh, uh, then uh, former OMB director uh, Mitch Daniels uh, became governor of Indiana. Uh, in the meantime, lured uh, Hudson to come to the middle of the country uh, to get a different perspective, perhaps, than what we get from on the coast. Uh, you were there for a number of years, uh, had the privilege of of working with people there. We understand why uh, you came back here, uh, moving into more foreign policy-focused uh, stuff, and a lot of that is what happens uh, here. But um, uh, we do appreciate uh, the fact that uh, you still value uh, Indiana. Some of your employees might be missing the ease of living and cost of living in Indiana relative to uh, Washington, not to mention the commute to work. 
but uh, nevertheless, it's uh, it's very nice of me to be able to be here with you and uh, uh, just uh, lay some groundwork for what uh, I think is one of the, if not the uh, uh, top challenge uh, that we face in terms of threats to to our country, to our people, and our processes uh, in the future. So before I sit down with Walter to uh, talk about a range of uh, global threats that we face, I'd like to focus uh, my initial remarks on the growing cyber threat uh, to our nation's security. And specifically, I'd like to put it in the context of the current cyber threat um, in terms of the threats we had uh, in a historical context and define uh, who is most responsible and what are they attempting to do and then discuss uh, the intelligence community's response to that. So each morning when I get up, I'm given a roundtable of news at what happened while I was asleep or what happened yesterday uh, from around the world. And almost without fail, uh, the longest section of this news roundup uh, is on cyber issues, uh, detailing multiple reports, uh, multiple reports of cyber attacks and alerts. And this issue affects all of us and it is increasingly affecting numerous aspects of our daily life, as many of you are familiar with. You know, you need to go back uh, less than two decades ago to put, I think, the current cyber threat into a proper context. In 2001, our vulnerability was heightened because of the stovepipe approach of our intelligence and law enforcement communities that produced what they called silos of information. At the time, intelligence and law enforcement communities were identifying alarming activities that suggested that an attack was coming, potentially in the United States. It was in the months prior to September 2001 when, according to then CIA Director George Tenet, the system was blinking red. And here we are two decades, nearly two decades later, and I'm here to say the warning lights are blinking red again. Today, the digital infrastructure that serves this country is literally under attack. Every day, foreign actors, the worst offenders being Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, every day they are penetrating our digital infrastructure and conducting a range of cyber intrusions and attacks against targets in the United States. The targets range from U.S. businesses to the federal government, including our military, to state and local governments, to academic and financial institutions, and elements of our critical infrastructure, just to name a few. These attacks come in different forms. Some are tailored to achieve very tactical goals while others are implemented for a strategic purpose, including the possibility of a crippling cyber attack against our critical infrastructure. But all of these disparate efforts share a common purpose to exploit America's openness in order to undermine our long-term competitive advantage. In regards to state actions, Russia has been the most aggressive foreign actor, no question and they continue their efforts to undermine our democracy. In regards to the upcoming midterm elections, I think there may have been some confusion between what we're seeing now 
compared to what we saw in 2016. Because as the Department of Homeland Security noted, we are not yet seeing the kind of electoral interference in specific states and in voter databases that we experienced in 2016. However, we fully realize that we are just one click of the keyboard away from a similar situation repeating itself. Therefore, and moreover, we are seeing aggressive attempts to manipulate social media and to spread propaganda focused on hot-button issues that are intended to exacerbate socio-political divisions. Despite public statements by the Kremlin to the contrary, we continue to see individuals affiliated with the St. Petersburg-based Internet Research Agency creating new social media accounts, masquerading as Americans, and then using these accounts to draw attention to divisive issues. We have learned just before this meeting the indictment of 12 Russian military intelligence officials relative to their role in 2016. But focusing on the potential impact of these actions on our midterm elections misses the more important point. These actions are persistent, they're pervasive, and they are meant to undermine America's democracy on a daily basis regardless of whether it is election time or not. Russian actors and others are exploring vulnerabilities in our critical infrastructure as well. DHS and FBI, in coordination with international partners, have detected Russian government actors targeting government and businesses in the energy, nuclear, water, aviation, and critical manufacturing sectors. The warning signs are there. The system is blinking. And it is why I believe we are at a critical point. Today, unlike the status of our intelligence community in 2001, we're much more integrated and better at sharing information between agencies. But the evolving cyber threat is illuminating new daily challenges in how we treat information. We are dealing with information silos of a different kind including between the public and private sector. But here's the good news. As I previously just mentioned, but needs to be stated again, the intelligence community today is more integrated than it has ever been, and we are sharing information across agencies at all levels. In regard to the midterms, we're partnering with DHS and FBI to provide support, information, and grants to state election officials from all 50 states and we will continue to look for opportunities to support this effort. In regarding the larger cyber threat issue, the President has signed an executive order strengthening the cybersecurity of federal networks and critical infrastructure, in which the President tasked a whole-of-government risk management review, resulting in a number of actions that OMB is now taking to strengthen U.S. networks with IT modernizing guidelines. The President has also authorized the use of all available tools of state power, including attribution, criminal indictments, and economic levers to punish malicious cyber actors. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our leaders at the National Security Council consider this as a top priority, and we are continuously pursuing actions on this issue. As you know, we're in a transition period with the NSC, 
but I have had numerous uh, talks with our new national security advisor and members of the NSC relative to the importance of raising this to a top issue, and they're doing so. Within the government, we're working continuously to detect, warn, and when necessary, respond to cyber threats. We have a multi-agency cyber threat intelligence integration center that builds understanding of cyber threats to inform decision makers. Department of Homeland Security and the FBI are demonstrating leadership on the foreign influence threat and applying a more assertive federal response, as we have just seen today. And my former colleagues in the House and the Senate are bringing significant attention to the threat from cyber and have expressed strong support for legislative action. Having said that, we have to do better in what we deliver to our customers, how we get it to them, and the speed by which they receive it. Today, those cross-cutting cyber threat threats have been illuminated, how rigid we still act when it comes to public discourse. The respective self-interests of the government, the private sector, and the public have created independence rather than complementary lines of effort and awareness. As a result, we need to think differently about our customers. In many ways, the nature of the cyber threat requires that we, the national security community, treat the private sector and American people as intelligence customers. And that is why you will see us talking about this threat more vocally and why you will continue to see us publish unclassified assessments and statements to inform the American people. Everyone, if we are to succeed in dealing with this threat, must take ownership of the challenge it will take the government, the private sector, and the American people all doing their part to better position our country for the future. As a government, we are having a more open dialogue about this threat. In particular, we in the IC need to provide the information available to us, to the private sector, and to the public to better inform their decision-making, and we need the private sector to see the public good in developing greater protections in the software, information systems, and applications on the market. <clears throat> and we also need the American people to verify the credibility of the sources of information upon which they base their decisions. Whether those sources are social media reports, cable news, or newspapers, it is essential that we all apply critical thinking to all sources of information. This evolution in the IC's approach is part of the transformation which we're driving within the ODNI and throughout the IC in coming years. We have brought together experts and leaders from across the intelligence community to take stock of where we are and what we must do to reach the next level of effectiveness. The result of this effort, which brought together the heads and deputies of all the intelligence community agencies, all 17, is a new vision for the future of the intelligence community. We call it Intelligence Community 2025. Where do we need to be? What kind of capabilities do we need to have? What kind of insights do we need to have in terms of the threats that we face? And we are putting together significant efforts to stay ahead of the game, ahead of the curve, and to be able to deliver to, deliver to our customers, starting with the president, working through his policymakers, working through the agencies, 
working through the American public with both the private and the, and the government sector. So with that, what I would like to do is, uh, at this particular time, thank you for the invitation. Hope we can have a, uh, I know we'll have, uh, with uh, Walter Russell Mead, uh, hopefully a, a good discussion about this. We can look at the larger threats or whatever questions uh, that uh, might, uh, might need to be addressed. And I would much rather do that than continue to talk up here, even though as a former senator, we love to talk. <laughs> so I'll thank you very much. Well, I have to say that's one of the most uh, dramatic uh, comparisons I've heard a senior government official make, saying that the, the warning indicators now are comparable to what they were in the months leading up to 911. Different threat, but it's there. And presumably, we're looking at anything from major attacks on infrastructure to massive attacks on the, the, the sort of electronic communications and all. We are, and uh, you know, it's not just from the states that I, nation states that I identified, those four. Uh, we see this from criminal organizations that uh, for nef nefarious purposes are using cyber. Mm -hmm. uh, we see this uh, from non-state actors, from terrorist groups, from criminal groups. Um, we see this from hackers around the world who see this as a game or just for the hell of it, mm -hmm. uh, take something down, break into the defense community, break into uh, Wall Street, um, on and on, um, on and on to kids in the basement or uh, uh, sitting in a dorm. Uh, it, is, it is pervasive. But the real threats, the sophisticated threats, of course, come from the states which have the capabilities and the resources to be able to, to really create great damage. So in your view, there's still a very significant gap between the capabilities of these states and then of the various criminal, terrorist, and other organizations that are out there? Well, in terms of having the resources to continue to develop the new tools, mm. to continue to have the ability to uh, adapt uh, with the agile agility uh, to up their game. In, in, in a sense, it's a game of, of, of uh, whack-a-mole mm -hmm. or chess, where you put a you, you see a threat, you put in a prevention, the threat then moves over, that source moves over here, you try, stop it there and try to get over here, and you see that across the board. And so it's a, it's a 24/7, 365-day effort in terms of protecting your people. You know, when you uh, read the, the news, listen to what people say on television, it's one story after another of one sensitive American database getting, uh, you know, the, some of the, the real crown jewels of our, of our community being uh, taken over. A, that makes me wonder, you know, how defenseless are we and is that going to change? But B, it also makes me wonder, are we getting some of this stuff ourselves and not talking about all of our successes? Is it is the cyber universe simply a story of American secrets being stolen on a mass basis? Oh, it's broader than that, but we've got capabilities, significant capabilities. I've been to a number of our cyber operation centers. Um, we have the resources. 
We have the capabilities. Um, uh, I don't think anybody's better than we are. Nevertheless, the range of vulnerabilities uh, is out there because the technology is advancing so rapidly. Uh, and as I said, this, this game of chess, um, we make a move to, to, to protect us or to identify. They make a move to go around. And we have to be aware of that uh, and never be complacent about what we have now, where we are, because there are people out there trying to uh, avoid, you know, to jump over us. It does seem like a domain where the offense is, seems to enjoy benefits over the defense. Is that? Yeah, that's been frustrating for me because I've got a lifetime of watching uh, NFL football games going to prevent defense in the last you know, mm-hmm. get a field goal, you're up one point, you go into prevent defense and, you know, opens up all kinds of holes. And the next thing you know, the other team kicks the field goal to win. It's so frustrating if you just rely on defense to win. Right. And so that's why I have, when I was in the Senate, and that's why I, now I continue to, uh, of course, my, my job is different now. I don't do policy, uh, but uh, the... Uh, uh, I continue to support and encourage uh, an offensive capability. You got to, well, if anybody knows what punch back is, uh, other, more than Donald Trump, uh, we need to approach punch back in a way, the right way, uh, if we're going to send the right signal to people. There is a price to pay. You come after us, there is a price to pay. The less you do of that, the more people are encouraged to say, I got nothing to lose. And so I think combining offensive measures with defensive measures is necessary to deal with this issue. It's interesting to think the Constitution does expressly provide for letters of mark and reprisal. It does. <laughs> Perhaps on the cyber seas, there's, there's something we can do. Of these four countries that you mentioned, Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran, it, were you giving us that in the order of their capabilities? Uh, yeah, but maybe from different perspectives. China has capabilities, resources um, that perhaps Russia doesn't have, uh, but they don't have the in- same intent. Of, you know, what's serious about the Russians is their intent. They have capabilities, uh, but it's, it's their intent to undermine our basic values, undermine democracy, create wedges between us and our allies, and we've seen this. In fact, the the indictment today shows exactly what they're trying to do or what they've done um, uh, through their military intelligence relative to elections. Uh, And we see, as I was mentioning in my statement, the ongoing efforts of, uh, it's not just the elections, it's uh, uh, a strategy. So the intent that comes out of Russia is different than the intent. China wants to steal our stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to build technology, the intellectual property, intellectual property, technology. Uh, um, they want to seed their. They want to try to change our vision of China and its intentions, um, but not through the same kind of means that the Russians use. So you have to put those two in context. Now, uh, Iran and North Korea. Uh, so North Korea, we're sort of at a. Um, um, we're not at a pause, but we're at a point where let's see where these negotiations go relative to our relationship with North Korea. Uh, and with Iran, I mean, 
they they just take all kinds of malicious activities against us, you know, ballistic missiles from seeding terrorism and you know on and on. But um, uh, on 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 uh, cyber, they potentially are somewhat limited because their economy is not doing well. Um, uh, they may be spread too thin or or whatever. So probably in that order. But you know the top two: Russia, China. Um, they're there every day. Uh, in cyber and another thing, speaking of North Korea, have you observed any difference in North Korea's behavior since the Singapore summit? Um, well, uh, I can't get into the obviously uh, classified up, uh, right. act parts of of what we see. We we have it's always been a hard target. We have significantly upped our game for this purpose. Um, uh, Reagan was trust and verify. That's what I came to Congress with. Um, and um, um, right now, um, I'm the verify guy. Uh, I see is the verify community. So we are focusing on what is happening um, both before and now current subsequent to, to the talks. But we're right at the beginning uh, of this, and we'll continue to evaluate it. Obviously, um, North Korea is probably, you know, trying to trying to figure out. Okay, I mean, we're at the beginning of negotiations, so I'm just not going to give up the ship right now. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But I think it's too early to to determine exactly uh, uh, definitively that uh, you know this is where they're going to end up or, or be there halfway through. or, or so no whatever. really dramatic. Nothing, really, nothing, nothing really way. dramatic. There's been some reporting. Some of it has not been accurate. Some of it has been accurate. So there are some continuing activities, but uh, some of those that have been reported uh, have not been uh, verified. Let's get back to the election and um, disinformation operations. Um, it seems to me that, that social media is one of the places, at least if we look at 2016, where disinformation was very accurate. Is that still the case now? Yes, very much so. I think I noted that in my remarks. Uh, uh, the exploitation of social media is very prevailing and, and increasing and very sophisticated. Who would have thought that ISIS, using the, the 7th century barbarian measures of, of imposing uh, physical harm on uh, and death on people and the tactics would be so sophisticated in also using cyber uh, early on and social media early on to recruit, uh, to train, and still, still inspire mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the defeat in the desert has not resulted in the defeat of terrorist organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. We see them spread around the world, and it still remains a terrorist threat to us. And social media is one of the ways in which they continue to raise money, recruit, train, inspire, uh, and we have to be aware of that. And when you go to social media companies and you say, you know, your platform is being targeted and used in a very, very specific way by these different hostile groups, do you get co the cooperation that you think you need from these companies? We have the obligation to, to learn and warn, uh, and we do. Um, we are in the process of working with social media companies in terms of taking responsibility for what they put out. Um, we've had some successes. Uh, 
Uh, we've had some interactions which haven't been as successful as we would like. We are going to continue to do that. But uh, there's a lot of brand protection. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, well, listen, if, if we do that and our competitors don't, then we're at a disadvantage. Uh, we try to talk about the responsibility relative to um, their commitment to help us address these threats and keep our people safe. So there's a real range of response there's from range pretty response. solid positive to, well, I don't think we can, we can help you. By the way, what's interesting to me is that, you know, we, we only collect against foreign uh, intelligence. Um, and so we, we know a lot less about the American people than our adversaries. Mm. And we know a lot less than some of our social media outlets uh, know about their customers. So, so Google knows us better than the federal government. Oh, absolutely. You know, in a way I feel good, in a way I feel bad. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Um, and in to, to, you were saying that they're sort of trying to polarize us and magnify differences. This reminds me a bit of what the communists used to do during the Cold War and the Soviet sure. Union's kind of key propaganda technique. I think maybe some of our younger uh, members of the audience may not know what this is all about, if you could explain it a bit. Well, when the wall came down, you know, we thought, okay, I mean, this is going to be a new Russia, uh, so-called reset. Uh, and for a period of time, uh, it was a, a different relationship. Yeah. Uh, then uh, Russia reached out and said, you know, maybe we've gone too far. Why don't we ask the guy who ran the KBG? He's a pretty savvy guy. He's been listening to Americans all his life, uh, or adversaries and so forth, and conducting everything that the KGB did and still does, different under a different acronym. Um, and uh, that that was a game changer. Uh, so I described it as a uh, uh, the Russian bear uh, after the fall of the wall went into the cave in the hibernation. He's out of the cave, hungry, and he's clawing for more territory, more influence, and using the same tactics that we saw in the Cold War and more. Uh, and, and the more results in uh, a lot of that in cyber. It's interesting that during the Cold War, they had the advantage of communist parties and networks of supporters around the world. They don't quite have that, although they seem to be trying to rebuild sort of loyal parties and factions. Mm -hmm. But it looks like on balance with the cyber tools, they've actually, they can actually do a better job than the Soviet Union could of this kind of disinformation, black propaganda. They're really good at lying, deceit, deception, um, uh, seeding, subtly seeding and not so subtly seeding dis dissension among adversaries. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, that the president made some comments about NATO um, um, and his closing comments were ones I really thought were important uh, because um, if, if NATO comes unglued, uh, Putin wins. And uh, he sees that, he's trying to seize that op potential opportunity, and I think we need to uh, stand up against it. Right. And so the pattern is not so much that uh, the Russians are supporting one side or another in a political battle, though sometimes they may do that, but they're trying to get both sides matter and more divided. Is this part of the Well, method? whether that's their method, uh, uh, that's what they succeeded in doing. I, I think it was, it, it certainly was 
designed as a strategy, and they've had some success, unfortunately. Um, what can we do to counter this? Transparency, I've, I've talked to my colleagues uh, uh, in different nations, uh, particularly in Europe. Um, the more we provide our people with uh, what the Russians, are, what we know the Russians are doing, the more we can inform our public not to just believe, take for granted what is put out in the media is truth. Um, we need more critical thinking, I think. We're barraged by media, by breaking news, by news outlets rushing to be the first, because if we don't do it, three others are going to do it, and our ratings will go down and their ratings will go up. And so there's no filter between news that, uh, information that comes into the system. There's no uh, editor, <laughs> as we used to have in the paper. Mm -hmm. There's nobody sitting in an office upstairs saying, we've got to run this by the boss you know, before we print it. It's, it's going to be too late to do that mm. because we want the news now. We want to access it, you know, on our iPhones right away. And so uh, we have to inform our people. Just don't believe everything that you hear out there. I mean, there's uh, I look for. We are we are agencies that seek the truth. Um, we can't shade it. We can't politicize it. It has to. Be, the truth is what it is. It's just just the facts. And I think our public needs to gain some uh, ability to qu ask questions and seek verification before we jump to conclusions mm -hmm. and rush to the camera to say, I just heard this, and wow, oh, you know. And then it, the next day on page 13, well, that was not exactly what it should have been. Yeah. So if you had a chance to, to speak with Mr. Putin at this sort of crucial period in U.S.-Russian relations, what's your message to President Putin? Well, my message would be, um, we know what you're doing, and we know you know what you're doing and what we are doing. And so, look, um, if, you, if your goal is to strengthen Russia in the proper way, um, we can cooperate with you. But if your goal is to strengthen Russia at the cost to us, if you're going to be a paranoid nation thinking that, you know, um, anytime in the next 24 hours we're going to take over Russia, um, you have this paranoia about democracy, um, we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, isn't it best for both sides here to basically say, um, instead of taking down, uh, why don't we build up? Uh, but, you know, President Putin, the decisions are up to you. We know you run the shop. We know you're making the decisions. You can't pass it off to, oh, that's some hacker down somewhere where we don't know. We know what you do, and so you make the choice. Uh, but if you want to stay in this uh, uh, tit for tat, uh, we're going to beat you. Okay. I, I, that's that's Ronald Reagan basically saying, "Hey, um, you want to take us on? Uh, okay, we'll uh, we'll we'll throw everything we got into it. You throw everything you got into it, and then you make a decision. And the Russians made a decision. They outdid us. We have the capacity to do that." 
to get from the sort of disinformation and political sphere to think more about the elections that are coming up. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear a lot of anxiety about the, the American, you know, whether it's voting machines or other elements of the voting process in the midterms. Um, how confident can we be that uh, uh, that the we've we've we're defending the security of our political system? We have to be confident because if we don't have confidence, when you walk into the poll and put your X on the candidate or the party that you want to support, if that becomes in question, it undermines our democracy. Uh, Which would sounds like somebody's strategic goal, possibly, to do exactly that. Yeah. So we have to make every effort. I tried to outline some of the efforts that we are making. Mm -hmm. It has to be solid 50 state. You can't have, look at what happened down in Florida on one county, one area of one county, hanging chads. That threw us into a constitutional crisis. <laughs> Think what can happen today if we find out that one state that might have been the critical state on mm. electoral vote. Control of the Senate or of the House or something. Exactly. Depending. Exactly. We're not looking at a presidential here, but we will be yep. starting the day after the election, uh, unfortunately. But uh, so we have to put everything we can in. We are. We've talked to all 50 state election officials, all 50 state uh, governors and officers. Uh, we're providing grants. We're, we're, we're looking at those who provide the machines. We're trying to back it up with a, a paper uh, uh, so that we have redundancy on it. And we just need to throw everything at it to ensure the American people we're doing everything possible to make it a fair election and not managed or massaged by anybody from the outside. And as, as you look at the p progress we're making and the obstacles that remain, do you feel that on the whole we're on track to have a safe and secure election? I think that. Well. We see it in a bipartisan way in the, in the House and the Senate. Uh, uh, we, see, uh, we see the executive branch stepping up big time. Uh, we see the states being warned now, uh, reaching out for help. Uh, we have to ensure, do everything we can to ensure our public that their vote counts. There, I know there's been some. There have been some reports of different independent groups monitoring states' readiness for the election, mm -hmm. and there seemed to be a, a wide gap. And some states were looking pretty good. Mm -hmm. Some other states, including the state of the Hanging Chad, seemed to be <laughs> a bit behind. Um, Got to get them up to date before the election. Right. We need to assure the American people that we've worked with all 50 states and we're ready. Are the laggards doing better at this point? I think they are. I think uh, nobody wants to be the uh, nobody wants to under, be the one that takes it down uh, because they didn't have their act together. So I, I, we're hearing that. As I said, we we have worked with the FBI's worked with the uh, DHS, uh, our intelligence community for warnings and and so forth. And we've worked with all 50 states, and um, it's ongoing. It's going to have to keep. Go ongoing right up to the day of the election. And from what you're hearing back from Congress and others, is your sense that on a bipartisan basis, people in Washington think that the work that you guys are doing is sufficient and mm -hmm. proper? I think we're seeing that. The Republicans are teeing up with Democrats, both in the Senate and in the House, to, to ensure that you know everybody's on board. Because this would certainly be a key. If, if one party be. or the other party said they're not doing the right thing, that yeah. would be a terrible. Well, we've, we've, you know, we've been witnessing this on another subject, uh, yep. and we've seen the uh, impact of it. Yep. Um, 
if you what what really worries you most when you think about scenarios that might unfold based on on the kind of unrivaled exposure you have to the threats that the country faces what are the things that really keep you up at night well you do you ever sleep okay yeah <laughs> restlessly sometimes um couple of things. Uh, one, the possession of nuclear weapons of mass destruction by terrorist groups. And when you think about 9-11, two planes flying into the Twin Towers, flying in, one plane flying into the, to the uh, Pentagon. If either one of those planes, or any, all three of them, had any kind of weapon of mass destruction aboard, we would be talking about deaths not in 3,000. We'd be talking about 300,000 or maybe 3 million or more. So preventing proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, particularly into groups, terrorist groups that uh, are not under any state control, um, have a theology or an ideology that uh, their, that victory is killing the opposition, uh, whether by its beheading or through a nuclear device. Um, that's one. The second is, uh, frankly, a 9/11, cyber 9-11. Think about uh, New England in January, uh, the grid going down for three days. Mm. A lot of people are going to suffer and die. Uh, think about uh, taking away uh, a hit on the, on the banks that wipes people's uh, mm lifetime savings out and we don't know where it came from I suppose we don't know yeah we don't know where it came from we don't know where the money is uh, and on and on so you know you kind of you do toss and turn uh, at night about scenarios that you hope will never happen in your view is the intelligence community as a whole getting the kind of resources and support that it needs to do the job that needs to be done we are and thanks to this administration and the Congress, we have really upped our ante, and we've been provided the resources we need to do what we need to do. And Frank, and we have some terrific capabilities. We've got some innovative people. We got some young people who come. Out. I'm a liberal arts major, with a law degree, but I mean, I should I should not be in the operational <laughs> operational efforts of, of cyber or technology. Uh, look at it from a different uh, perspective. For, fortunately, we've hired a lot of really capable, smart people, a lot of young people coming on that have technological capabilities, STEM capabilities that you know I never even dreamed of. Um, and so I'm, uh, every visit I make, and I make a lot of them to our, our various agencies and their components, I'm so impressed with the technical capabilities we have. We're an innovative country. Uh, uh, democracy and freedom uh, produces some great stuff if it's done the right way. Well, thank you, Director Coach. You have, uh, I don't know if I call you Senator, Ambassador, but Director, I guess. Dan is probably the best. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, the work that you're doing is important. I think everybody here in, and, and on television appreciates the you know, importance of what you do and wishes you every possible success. Well, Walter, I want to say something. I came across this article a couple of days ago about what maybe uh, people are thinking and about Donald Trump's unorthodox foreign policy. And it ends with, 
we should brace ourselves for a wild ride. Guess who wrote that? Hmm. Walter Russell Mead. <laughs> Wall Street Journal, a couple of days ago. I, I highlighted it and cut it out. Anyway, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you and back at Hudson. And uh, Well, great to be with thanks you. Thanks for asking me to be here. And I know uh, uh, the director has to get out quickly. As you can imagine, his schedule is packed. So if the audience could sit while he leaves quickly to get on to whatever he's doing next. I don't think he can tell us what he's doing next. But uh, And thank you again for coming. Thank you. Really appreciate it.